Right. Good morning. Good morning. You know, I just told Joe a moment ago, I want to just linger in that song. Linger. Let that linger for a long time. I, that, that, that just, if, if that doesn't get your heart to beat for the glory and praise of God, nothing else will. I'm telling you, that was, that was sweet worship this morning. A um, few housekeeping things real quick. Some of you may be wondering, what happened to Moses? Well, we have forgot about Moses. We're going to come back to Moses next week. So after like 18 weeks of being in Moses, my personality, I'm like, I need to change. I need to do, do something different. So we're going to come back. Next week, we're going to be in Numbers chapter 11. We're going to be talking about grumbling, complaining, and not being content with God's provisions in our life. I've been looking at it this week. And so next week, we're going to launch it. But today, we're going to do something a little different. Do you know how many weeks... There are until Easter Sunday morning. Anybody want to take a guess? Five? Nine? Seven? Close? Six. Winter, winter, chicken dinner. Six weeks until Easter Sunday morning. Here's my challenge to you this morning. I'm going to preach a little bit this morning, okay? Might get a little passionate this morning. I, I, I want God to stir afresh a new passion, a new love for him. But I want, I want God to do a work in all of our hearts over the next six weeks. There is something unique about Easter and Christmas. You know, a lot of people who are not spiritual, um, they don't go to church, they're open. They're open to coming. So my challenge to you is I want you to seek the heart of God over the next six weeks. We talk about oikos, 8 to 15. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But I, I, I want you to really pray and ask God, God, who, who's the one? Who's the one that I should be inviting, bringing, maybe taking a lunch on Easter Sunday and pay for their lunch, right? Who should you bring with you? Because I can tell you this, a simple invite could change someone's life forever. We know that the gospel spreads in relationships. Andrew went and got Peter, right? Brothers went and got brothers. The gospel spreads in a web of relationships. And as you're obedient to, to, to invest, to give an invite, you know what? God does the saving word. God opens the eyes to gospel truth, right? The, the burden is not on you. The responsibility is on you. But the weight of, of someone's life being changed, that is God's doing. It's God's business. It's God's saving work. So I want us to be praying and really seeking the Lord over the next six weeks. Um, we're going to have flyers, plenty of flyers over the next few weeks. We're going to give out flyers, and we just want you to be about the mission, right? And bring some people, invite some people to Easter Sunday morning. Pull out your Bibles and your message notes. We're going to look at Isaiah. And the message this morning is going to be very God-centered, but it's going to be very applicational about um, how we should see our world and the brokenness and the lostness. And what, what's, what's our responsibility? What should we be about? So Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. 
And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Picture the scene. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Have you ever wondered what it's going to be like to stand in the presence of God? Have you ever wondered what it's going to be like to exit this world, to take your last final breath, and you stand in the blazing glory and holiness and justice and love of God Almighty. What is that going to be like? There's a man in the Bible who saw God. He experienced God. And he, and he gives us a, a sneak preview into this experience. The Bible tells us in Isaiah 6 that Uzziah was one of the great kings of Judah. And he took the throne at age 16. He reigned 52 years. The Bible says that he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. There were many kings that did evil in the eyes of the Lord. But this guy was a God-fearing man. He was a God-fearing king. And he set himself to seek the heart of God. And because of that, God made him prosper. He was one of the very few kings that served Judah, few godly kings. Isaiah was not just a king. He was a hero to the people. He literally rebuilt Judah. He made it a strong military force. At this time, the kingdom is split in two. So if you remember, there was the United Empire, David, Saul, Solomon, David's son Solomon. Actually, Saul was first, then David, then Solomon. Under Solomon's son Rehoboam, the kingdom was split in two. So the northern kingdom is Israel, the southern kingdom is, is Judah. Isaiah is a young man, and he's a leading prophet of Judah. He begins his public ministry around the time of Uzziah's death, and without question, he's one of the the greatest prophets of the Old Testament. He ministered to God's people during great political turmoil. The Bible tells us that his friend Uzziah dies, and then Isaiah has this grand vision of God, perhaps like no other person in the Bible. He invites us into this vision, and he shares with us what he experienced. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Here's the first principle. When we encounter God, we see his holiness. When you encounter God, you're going you're gonna to see him for who he is. You're going to see his holiness. Uzziah dies in 740 B.C. The death of Uzziah was a crisis. It caused Isaiah to look up, and that's what a crisis does. When someone experience, experiences a crisis, it causes them not so much to look inward, introspection, but it causes them to look up. 
it causes them to want help and people begin to look up. When, 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 when people experience a crisis and tribulations and suffering and pain, when a tsunami hits someone's life, it could be a divorce, it could be a financial collapse, it could be the death of a loved one. It's a wake-up call for some people. It causes people to begin to ask questions, to start searching for God. Do you know that people are more receptive, receptive to spiritual things when they're struggling? So God has given you an oikos, 8 to 15. He has supernaturally and strategically dropped these people in your world, whether you want them or not. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you love to do some inter-oikos trades sometimes? Like, I'm going to give you this person, you give me that person, right? Okay, bad joke, whatever, right? So we all have an oikos, right? These people that God has put on your front porch, he's dropped them into your life, and he wants you to list, pray, invest, invite, prepare. He wants you to list. He wants you to see, see them as people loved by God, people that need to hear the message of grace and hope. And then pray for them. Pray for God to open doors. Pray for God to change your heart. Pray, pray for, for God to shape your heart and, and for you to see them the way God sees them. And then to make the investment. They're not a project, right? They're not a, you know, fly by night, you know, one and done. Okay, boom, I invited you to church. Okay, I shared my testimony. Okay, I shared the gospel. Done. No. Investment, any investment has to be long term, right? You're committed for the long haul. That's what an investment is. And then you list, you pray, you invest, you invite, you begin to invite. You invite them to Easter Sunday morning. You invite them to a community group. You invite them to, a, to an outreach event. We got a ladies event coming up. Great opportunity for you to invite another lady in your oikos to come to this event. Crises are, are, are boulders, I, I like to call them. Trials are wake-up calls. It causes people to be curious about spiritual things. You know, when it comes to Isaiah's vision, he, 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 he caught a glimpse of the holiness of God. Actually, he caught more of a glimpse of, of the glory of God. How does our culture view God? A lot of people in our culture, they say, well, God, you know, okay, creator, he's, he's an absentee landlord, right? You know, a lot of people hold the view like, like uh, the found, some of the founding fathers, they were deists, and they believe that God wound up the creation, he, and he wound it up like a clock, and he just let it go. He's just this nameless creator and he's not involved in his creation some people say no god he's the man upstairs you know or he's my cosmic buddy or he's the doting grandfather and he just wants to just take you fishing and have a good time with you you know or he's santa claus he just wants to give you nice little trinkets and gifts some people view god as this greek mythology godlike figure that is seeking to zap you when you get out of line our culture has all these views about who God is, but the Bible tells us who God is. The Bible reveals to us who God is. Christianity is about revelation, not speculation. So we have all these questions. Is there a God? Can he be known? Is he good? Um, is he forgiving? And, and, and the answers to all of those is yes. He's revealed himself in the Bible. So when we come to the scriptures, everything we need to know about God is found in the word. This is, the, this is the, the beauty of Christianity. God didn't just write one book. He wrote 66 books. 66 books. 39 in the old, 27 in the new. So that we can know him. 
in a very intimate way. Isaiah, he has this view of God. It's not this low, puny, weak, shallow, laughable view of God. He has a very high view of God. It's grand, it's glorious, it's big. Isaiah says, I saw God sitting on the throne. So when King Uzziah died, God wasn't pacing heaven. He wasn't pulling out his hair. He wasn't wringing his hands or strategizing his next move. See, God is not like us. He's eternal. He's infinite, right? Nothing takes God by surprise. There's never a moment when God says, my bad. There's never a moment when God says, mm, I'll, get, I'll get it right next time, right? No, because God is sovereign. He's all-powerful. He's totally in control. When it comes to God's sovereignty, if he decrees it, it's going to come to pass. Nothing can thwart God's plans or God's purposes. You know, I like to say this way, God's on time every time. You know, you should write that on your neighbor's notes. God's on time every time, right? That's what, if, if, if God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I love the story of Bill Vukovic. He was a race car driver, and some say that he was the greatest driver ever in American motorsport. He was known as Vuki or the Mad Russian for his intense driving style. He won several Indianapolis 500 races. In 1952, at the Indianapolis 500, Bill Vukovic led 150 laps, and then he crashed on lap 192. It was a completely freak accident. The failure, they discovered, was a 10-cent steering pin that broke during the race. See, Bill Vukovic was an amazing race car driver, but he could not be in control of everything. When it comes to God, God is not worried about 10-cent steering pins wrecking his plans because he's sovereign, because he rules and he reigns over all space and time and, and history. He created the world for his glory. Nothing, nothing can, can jolt God or push God out of what he's doing God is working behind the scenes to make things happen. Now, maybe, maybe, just maybe in your life, you might feel like, you know what? I feel like my life is caving in on me. I feel like my marriage is in shambles. I feel like there's, there's financial insecurity. I feel like, you know, the hope that I had for the future has been stripped away. And maybe you're asking God, God, where are you at in my pain? God, where are you at in my pain? Where, where are you in the midst of, of my hurt and my, my hopelessness? Here's the good news. Isaiah tells us, in the midst of whatever you're facing, the good news is, God is still on the throne. Nothing takes God by surprise. Isaiah 46.10 says, Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Everything God does is on purpose, on time, every time. If he decrees it, it's gonna happen. Sometimes God allows things, it's his passive will. You look at Job, you look at Joseph, look at the life of Jesus, He's a, he, he's, he allows things to happen, especially biblical characters. You think, man, why did they go through so much pain and tragedy and suffering? Because God allowed it, everything that happens in your life is filtered through his hands. Nothing happens to you that God is not aware of. And so we can face life, we can face hardships, we can face suffering because God is in control. Isaiah says, I saw God, God's throne 
high and lifted up. This speaks of God's superior power and authority. This tells us that God doesn't share his glory or his throne with anyone. There is one throne, it's high and lifted up, and there is one God. Now, when I was in high school, my dad's a pastor, so um, freshman year of high school, you know, we moved from city to country, and so Northern California to Lake Isabella, right outside of Bakersfield, Anybody know where that's at? Probably not. Okay, maybe a few of you. I mean, it's Hickville. It's country. It's like cowboys. It's like wranglers. It's like, I was from the city. I was like, I'm not Kansas any longer, right? And it was, a, it was, it was jolting. It was shocking for me. Um, I didn't fit in. I didn't have any friends. But, man, God used that freshman year of my life to mold me and shape me. I'd bring my Bible to school. I'd read my Bible. And God was just, God was, I, God was calling me to ministry at a young age. And I remember there was a sweet older lady by the name of Rose in my dad's church. She passed away years ago. Sweet old lady. She gave me all of these cassette tapes. If you're young, you have no clue what I'm talking about when I say cassette tapes. But she gave me all these cassette tapes of Walter Martin. And he wrote the book Kingdom of the Colts before Hank Hanegraaff edited it and rewrote it. And I just devoured all of them. I mean, I learned everything I could about Mormonism and Jehovah Witness and all these uh, world religions. And Mormons teach that God will share his glory with you. God is just an exalted man. Mormonism teaches that you can reach godhood. You can reach exaltation. If you keep Mormon doctrine, the commandments, and you tithe, and you're sealed in the temple, you're going to have this forever spiritual family that's forever sealed and you're going to be the god of your planet or your galaxy and you're going to populate it with these spirit babies here's the deal the bible is very clear the bible says god says this about himself i am the alpha i'm the omega that is i am the first i am the last there's none before me there's none after me you can't you won't be a god mormons believe that they will be but you won't be there's only one god the God of this universe. God is the first and the last. None before him, none after him. Isaiah 57 verse 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity. I mean, just, just try to understand that. That's how big our God is. He inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So Isaiah is telling us that God is transcendent. That means he is superior to. He is independent of anything he's created. He's in a class of his own. He is far and above and beyond what our finite minds can even fathom. Let me explain it this way. This is how transcendent God is, with God being the creator of, of the universe. The earth is racing through the solar system at a speed of 67,000 miles per hour. Our Milky Way galaxy is so big that it would take earth 200 million years to go around it. 200 million years just to go around our Milky Way galaxy. The Hubble telescope tells us there, are, there may be two trillion galaxies the bible says 
The heavens declare the glory of God. Did you know that there are 100 billion stars just in the Milky Way galaxy? That means that God is a star maker. He's a galaxy former. This is how big God is. He inhabits eternity. Total estimated stars in all 2 trillion galaxies is 200 sextillion. I don't even understand what that even means. That's 2 followed by 23 zeros. Let me put it this way. There are more stars in the visible universe than there are grains of sand on all the beaches in the world. God inhabits eternity. He inhabits eternity. He's a big God. He's, he's, an, he's an awesome God. Colossians 1, 15 to 17 speaks of Christ. It says, He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So when you see Christ, you see God. He's the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. Now stop real quick. You might say firstborn. So he was created? No. Firstborn speaks of his preeminence. He is the most significant, greatest thing ever. He, his preeminence, right? He, nothing outranks him, right? For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. You were made through him. You were made for him. You were made for him. You were made for God's pleasure. You were made for God's glory. Stop and just think about that for a moment. Wow. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, the universe, the galaxies, the stars, everything is held together because of the power of his word, his spoken word. He's transcendent. He's big. He's glorious. But he's also imminent. He's close, and he's involved with his creation. He's high and lifted up. He dwells in the high and holy place, but he also dwells with the lowly. I mean, just think about that. God is so transcendent, but yet he's so imminent. He knows your worries, your fears. He knows everything about your life. He's near to you. The Bible says he's near to the brokenhearted. He knows what's going on in our lives, and he cares. Isaiah says, I saw the train of his robe fill the temple. He's speaking of God's incompatible splendor, his robe filling the heavenly temple. And then he speaks of the seraphim. We don't know exactly what these are. These are angelic beings. We do know that. In the Hebrew, the word seraphim is plural. So this could be hundreds. This could be thousands. This could be millions of seraphim. The word seraphim means blazing ones. They have six wings, two They cover their face, I think, because they can't even look at the face of God. Two, they cover their feet, I think speaking of humility, and with two, they fly. Speaking of that they're they're messengers, they're, they're serving God, they're at God's beck and call. And then Isaiah says, I see the seraphim, and they're echoing back and forth. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. John picks up. On this theme in Revelation chapter 4, verse 8, John has this vision and, and, he, and he's given a glimpse in, into heaven, the throne room of glory. And it says, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Heaven is going to be one continuous, awesome worship celebration. I mean, it's going to be powerful. And, and, and you see in Isaiah and Revelation, the attribute holy is repeated three times in a single verse. Four living creatures before the throne with a thunderous voice, holy, holy, holy. Isaiah tells us seraphim are crying out and the foundations shake violently. Now, I don't know if we have uh, any Hallmark stores today, but back in the day, there were Hallmark stores, Hallmark cards, and you could pick up a Hallmark card, and it shows chubby, fat, winged babies holding harps, right? And they're like floating on clouds. I think there's a lot of Christians that have this view of heaven, that like heaven is this ethereal, out-of-body experience kind of hazy, kind of foggy, this, this just kind of, you know, you're just out there kind of floating. Some, I think some people think heaven's going to be boring. Let me tell you this. That couldn't be further from the truth. Heaven is not this ethereal place that you can't really touch or feel. No, heaven is a real place. You, we are going to have real bodies, real glorified bodies. And the Bible says we're going to be on the, the new heavens and the new earth. Real place, real bodies, worshiping our real king for all eternity. Amen? It's not this, this weird experience. No, we are going to be in the presence of God. In the presence of these blazing seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. God's holiness is his quintessential aspect of his character. It means that he is distinct. He's in a class of his own. But I want you to see his holiness is connected to his glory. In verse 6, the seraphim cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. You would think that the seraphim would say, The whole earth is full of his holiness. But it says, The whole earth is full of his glory. When you talk about God's glory, it's, it's kind of a difficult thing to define. It's mentioned 400 times in the Bible. And let me say it this way. God's glory is the going public of his holiness or the going public of his infinite worth. The glory of God is the display of God's infinite beauty and the worth of God. It's the radiance of his holiness. It's speaking of his character. So God's glory is the most important thing in this universe. We don't add to God's glory, right? God says, I'm first and last, right? I'm, I'm alone. I alone am God. No one will ever be God. We don't add to God's glory, but we're called to live for his glory. We're called to live for the glory of God. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said this, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus is connecting light and good works. He's saying, your light is your good works. Your good works is your light. Let your light, let your good works shine. Sometimes we want to do some good works, but we kind of want to like maybe kind of hide it because we're like, oh, I don't want to stand out. I don't, I don't want that to, you know, you know, kind of, I don't want that to be seen as a prideful thing. Jesus is saying, listen, go public with your works. Go public with your light. 
Because when people see your good works, they see your light, they're going to give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, it all comes down to motives, right? But Jesus is making a good point. Live out the works that God has prepared beforehand for you. And the end result, the end game, is that people will see that. They'll see the transformation, what Christ has done in your life, and they will give glory and praise your heavenly Father. You know, when you go to a gallery or a library or a museum, I'm not a huge fan of, of museums. Me personally, I, I go to a museum, whether it's sculpture or art, I, I'm good seeing like just a few things and reading a few little descriptive like plaque deals and I'm good to go. Like, I'm okay, let's go. Let's go to the next thing, right? Some people, they go to a, a museum and they got to read everything. They got to get the headphones they got to go one exhibit at a time. they got to read every little thing, right? Anybody like that? Anybody? I know some of you, are, you don't want to admit it. But I'm more like, hey, I want to see a few things. I look at the painting. I'm like, I have no clue what that means. Maybe you were on some crazy trip when you did that painting. So I'm, I'm out of here, right? I want you to picture your life as a museum. Every museum has a curator, an overseer, a manager, the brains behind the museum. And that's God. God's the overseer. He's the curator. He's, he's the creator, right? Your life is a museum. God's behind the scenes working in the museum of your life. You and I, we're followers of Christ. And inside that museum, we are the display case. And inside the display case is Jesus. Or it should be Jesus. What are we displaying to the world? What are we displaying to our oikos? See, our life is on display every day. And, and here's the reality. If you're engaging with people who don't know Christ, they're watching you. They're listening to you. They're, they're picking up cues. They, they're trying to match words with lifestyle. They're trying to figure out, is this, are they credible? Like they say they love Christ. They say they're a Christ follower. But I want to make sure, like, are they living it out? And so... If there's credibility, and that's the key with the Christian life, we have to have credibility with lost people. If you don't have credibility, you don't have an oikos because they're not going to listen to you. Our life is continually on display for everyone to see. And so the goal is live in such a way that people are going to see Christ in you. That is the goal of the Christian life, right? That you're conformed to the image of Christ as you're being conformed and changed, renewed, Right? start looking different, acting different, people pick up on that. Isaiah, he has this grand, glorious vision of God's holiness. It affects him personally. Look at verse 5. And, 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 and Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Here's the next principle. When we encounter God, we cannot ignore our sinfulness. See, up until this point, Isaiah, he's been pointing the finger, right? He's the prophetic voice. He's the one saying, hey, you know what, nation, Judah, hey, get your stuff together, right? Get spiritually right with God. Verse, in chapter 5, he mentions the word woe six times. Chapter 6, he hears the seraphim cry out, holy, holy, holy. God is shining a spotlight on Isaiah's sinfulness, Literally, in the Hebrew, it's literally, I am ruined. Like, woe is me, I, I am ruined. But it literally is like, ah, ah, 
woe is me, I'm ruined. It's personal. It's real for Isaiah, just like it was real for Job. When Job, Job had a similar experience with trials and tragedies, he was confronted with the greatness of God. What does Job tell us? I, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You know, our culture has big view of self, low view of God. Big view of self, low view of God. But the Bible portrays low view of self, big view of God. The closer you get to Christ, the more you're going to see the ugliness and your sin, your depravity, your brokenness. The Apostle Paul, who was a pastor, he was a missionary, he planted all these churches. If you look at the New Testament, he planted half, he planted, he wrote half the New Testament. I mean, here's this guy that went from persecuting the church to being persecuted for the faith. And what did he say? He said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He could have stopped there. But then he says, of whom I am foremost. If you have a New King James Version, the word is chief. Paul says, I am chief. But sometimes as Christians, we act like we have it all together. Like, we ain't ain't got sin. We, We ain't got struggles. Paul's like, Paul's like the first one to raise his hand in class saying, I got struggles, I got hurts, you know, read Romans 7. Man, Romans 7 is like, Paul's like, the things I want to do, I don't do, the things I I don't want to do, I find myself doing, like, it's just like, Paul's very honest about his own personal struggles and his own struggle in the sanctification department. When When you encounter God, God shows you your brokenness and your need for him. And that you're a sinner. Let's pick up the story in verse 6 and 7. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I want you to underline or circle that last, the last two phrases. Your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. It's amazing to me. How did Isaiah come to God? He was, he was only able to come to God by way of a sacrifice, right? The seraphim took the coal from the altar and touched his mouth, and, and the seraphim said, the guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for. He could only encounter God by way of a sacrifice. We can only encounter the God of the Bible by way of a sacrifice. It's not by our sacrifice. It's not by our works. It's not our performance. You can't go to heaven unholy. You can't go to heaven unholy. You have to go to heaven holy. And the only way for you to be holy is Christ. Christ and his sacrifice and what he did on the cross for you. You acknowledging that you're a sinner and you're receiving God's gift of eternal life. I love what P.T. Forrest said. Christianity is not the sacrifice we make, but the sacrifice we trust. It is not the sacrifice we make. God's like, I... I could care less about burnt offerings and sacrifices. God's like, I want your heart. But when it comes to the gospel and Christ, it's about the sacrifice, the, the cross of Christ that we cling to, that we're trusting in. Someone said, God didn't overlook your sins, least he endorsed them. He didn't punish you, least he destroy you. 
He instead found a way to punish the sin and preserve the sinner. God took your punishment and God gave you credit for Jesus' perfection. I love that. He found a way to punish sin but preserve the sinner. Look at verse 5 and 8. In verse 5, after Isaiah is very honest about his condition, he says, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then in verse 8, and I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. Here's our last point. Write this down. When we encounter God, our hearts will be broken for the lost. I want you to see the progression in Isaiah 6. First, it's upward. It always begins there. It has to begin there. You have to encounter the God of the Bible. And then when you encounter God, he encounters you. He shows you your spiritual condition that you're lacking, that you need his grace. And then you're converted because of the atoning work of Christ, your, your guilt, your sin forgiven, and then it moves outward. So upward, inward, outward. There's this trickle-down effect, and it begins with getting a glimpse of God, his holiness. God said, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Isaiah's response was, I will. Literally, he says, hear me. That's what he says in Hebrew. Hear me. Hear me, God. Send me. You know, I've got four teenagers. You could pray for me. You could really pray for my wife because she does more of the heavy lifting, right? She's, uh, I give it up to any, any mom, whether you stay at home or you don't stay at home, you, or you're a working woman, you're a stay-at-home woman. Listen, if you're a woman and you got kids, you are freaking awesome, okay? But we got four teenagers, and I'm telling you, it's rough. We love, we, I mean, we are crazy about our kids. But these teenage years, man, I mean, you know, when they're little, you know, it's, it's physical. It's just physically draining because they have so much energy, right? And you're just, I mean, you got to do everything for them, right? But when they become a teenager, they can outthink you. They can, they can get smart. They're smarter than you sometimes. They, they, they can, you know, they, they can put you, they can twist you up like a pretzel and then Anyways, they, they can argue, they can spar, they can, you know, I don't know. Teenagers, they're in a class of their own, right? I remember when um, our oldest son, John Mark, when he was about three years old, and it's very hard for me to tell the story without choking up. Uh, I choked up first service. I think I'm going to be okay this service. But I had this dream. John Mark was three at the time. And it was the most vivid dream I've ever had in my life, even to this day. Like, I'm a sleep talker, sleep walker. You probably don't know that about me, but I'm like, wow, man. I could, just, like, I could you know, I start talking. You ask Candace. I talk in my sleep. I walk around. It's crazy. I think it's because of the, the UPS days, having to work in the middle of the night, shifts. So we needed insurance And when I was in grad school. Anyways, I'm chasing another rabbit. John Mark was three years old. I had this dream. And it was so vivid. It was so real. In the dream, he was stuck in a, in a house with other people. And the house was on fire. And he was, he was crying and begging for help. 
And there's nothing I could have done. It was like, there's nothing we could have done. And I woke up, and I, I have never sobbed, wept like I did waking up from that dream. It was an uncontrollable weeping. I mean, it was so bad. Candace was like, she kept, she kept saying, what's wrong? What's wrong? And I, it was uncontrollable. It was a deep emotional feel that I had. And I think about that experience. We all, if you have kids, you understand the love that you have for your kids. You would do anything. You would give your life for your kids. You would take a bullet for them. But when I think about the lostness of humanity, does our heart break for, does our heart break the same way for the lostness around us? Does my heart break for people in my oikos that don't know Christ? Does the truth of the gospel wet your eyes when, when you think about your loved ones who are separated from Christ, they don't know Christ? Does, does, it, does it do something to you? When is the last time you got on your knees and you begged God for someone's salvation? You begged God, please God, open a door for me to share the gospel. Open the door for me to give an invite, right? This is for all of us. No one graduates from this, right? As a, as a pastor, I'm a Christian, you're a Christian. Like God calls us, share our faith. Are we, are we sharing God's great love with people that are lost? And you know, hey, you know, at times, there's moments where, man, God swings wide the door. I mean, hinges are off, doors open. And I'm like, uh, I don't know God. I don't know God, right? Rejection, fear. I don't know if I'm going to say it right. I experience that all the time. You, you, think, you, think I, you, you think I don't? I do all the time. But as believers, like the book of Acts, early church, we got to pray for boldness. God, give us boldness. So we can speak the name of Christ. We can be winsome in our words. We can be gracious. We can be truthful. We can be loving. And we can invest and invite and engage. And God, you got to do the saving work. But man, I'm going to try to be the light for you. And so that's the challenge. Easter six weeks away. I love what Carl Henry said. Carl Henry, he said, the gospel is only good news if it gets there on time. It's only good news if it gets there on time. People are dying without Christ, going into a Christless eternity. And I, I don't want this to be a, like a doom and gloom. I want this to be a heartfelt motivation for all of us. Like, we love Christ. Let's pray for boldness. Let's take the gospel to the nations, which is what we started doing last year. We're doing another mission trip, Costa Rica, high school students, young adults. God has a heart for the nations, but God also has a heart for your neighborhood. He has a heart for your oikos, so it has to be nations and neighborhood. It has to be both. We've got to cross the sea, but we've got to cross the street too. It has to be both. If you think your job is to witness to everyone, you're going to witness to no one. But if you see your world that, you know what, 8 to 15 people, that's doable. Okay, God Show me my sliver. Show me my slice. Um, help me take your gospel to my people, 
right, to my world. When Isaiah heard the triune counsel of God, he didn't hesitate, he didn't wait, he didn't make excuses. What a great example for us. Gosh, we all hesitate, we wait, we make excuses. He answered the call of God on his life. And literally, Isaiah said, God, use me. So the challenge is, are we going to be like Isaiah? Are we going to say, God, here am I. Send me. Let's pray.